Dieppe, 27th of May, 1897. To the editor of the Daily Chronicle. Dear Sir, I learn with regret through the columns of your paper that Warder Martin of Reading Prison has been dismissed by the prison commissioners for having given some sweet biscuits to a little hungry child. I saw the three children myself on the Monday preceding my release. They had just been convicted and were standing in a row in the central hall in their prison dress, carrying their sheets under their arms previous to their being sent to the cells allotted to them. I happened to be passing along one of the galleries on my way to the reception room where I was to have an interview with a friend. They were quite small children, the youngest, the one to whom the warder gave the biscuits, being a tiny little chap, for whom there had evidently been unable to find clothes small enough to fit him. I had, of course, seen many children in prison during the two years which I was myself confined. Wandsworth Prison especially contained always a large number of children. The little child I saw on the afternoon of Monday the 17th at Reading was tinier than any one of them. I need not say how utterly distressed I was to see these children at Reading, for I knew the treatment in store for them. The cruelty that is practised by day and night on children in English prisons is incredible, except to those who that have witnessed it and are aware of the brutality of the system. People nowadays do not understand what cruelty is. They regard it as a sort of terrible medieval passion and connect it with the race of men like Eccellino de Romano and others to whom the deliberate infliction of pain gave a real madness of pleasure. But men of the stamp of Eccellino are merely abnormal types of perverted individualism. Ordinary cruelty is simply stupidity. It's the entire want of imagination. It is the result of, in our days of stereotyped systems of hard and fast rules and of stupidity. Where, wherever there is centralization, there's stupidity. What is inhuman in modern life is officialism. Authority is as destructive to those who exercise it as it is to those on whom it is exercised. It is the prison board and the system that it carries out that is the primary course of cruelty that it exercises on the child in prison. The people who uphold the system have excellent intentions. Those who carry it out are humane in intention also. Responsibility is shifted onto the disciplinary regulations. It is supposed that because a thing is the rule, it is right. The present treatment of children is terrible, primarily from people not understanding the peculiar psychology of a child's nature. A child can understand the punishment inflicted by an individual, such as a parent or guardian, and bear it with a certain amount of acquiescence. What it cannot, cannot understand is a punishment inflicted by society. They cannot realise what society is. With grown people, it is, of course, the reverse. Those of us who are either in prison or have been sent there can understand and do understand what that collective force called society means. 
whatever we may think of its methods or its claims, we can force ourselves to accept it. Punishment is inflicted on us by an individual, on the other hand, is a thing that no grown person endures or is expected to endure. The child consequently be taken away from his parents by people whom it has never seen and of whom it knows nothing and finding itself in a lonely and unfamiliar cell, waited on by strange faces and ordered about and punished by representatives of a system that it cannot understand becomes an immediate prey to the first and most prominent emotion produced by modern prison life, the emotion of terror. The terror of a child in prison is quite limitless. I remember once seeing in Reading, as I was going out to exercise, seeing in the dimly lit cell right opposite my own, a small boy. Two warders, not unkindly men, were talking to him, with some sternness apparently, or perhaps giving him some useful advice about his conduct. One was in the cell with them, the other standing outside. The child's face was like a white wedge of sheer terror. There was in his eyes the terror of a hunted animal. The next morning I heard him at breakfast time crying and calling to be let out. He was crying for his parents. From time to time I could hear the deep voice of the warder on duty telling him to keep quiet. Yet he was not even convicted of whatever little offence he'd been charged with. He was simply on remand. That I knew by his wearing his own clothes, which seemed neat enough. He was, however, wearing prison socks and shoes. It showed that he was a very poor boy. His own shoes, if he had any, were in a bad state. Justices and magistrates, an entirely ignorant class as a rule, often remind children for a week, and then perhaps remit whatever sentence they are entitled to pass. They call this not sending a child to prison. It is, of course, a stupid view on their part. To a little child, whether he's in prison on remand or after conviction is not a subtlety of social position he can comprehend. To him, the horrible thing is to be sent there at all. In the eyes of humanity, it should be a horrible thing for him to be there at all. This terror that seizes and dominates the child as it seizes the grown man also is of course intensified beyond power of expression by the solitary cellular system of our prisons. Every child is confined to itself for 23 hours out of the 24. This is an appalling thing. To shut up a child in a dimly lit cell for 23 hours out of the 24 is an example of the cruelty of stupidity. If an individual parent or guardian did this to a child, he would be severely punished. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children would take the matter up at once. It would be on all hands the utmost detestation of whomsoever had been guilty of such cruelty. A heavy sentence would undoubtedly follow conviction. But our own actual society does worse itself, and to the child to be so treated by a strange and abstract force of whose claims it has no cognizance is much worse than it would be to receive the treatment from its father or mother or someone that it knew. The inhuman treatment of a child is always inhuman, by whomsoever it is inflicted. But inhuman treatment by society to the child 
the more terrible because there is no appeal. A parent or guardian can be removed and let out a child from the dark, lonely room in which it is confined. But a warder cannot. Most warders are very fond of children, but the system prohibits them from rendering the child any assistance. Should they do so, as Warder Martin did, they are dismissed. The second thing from which a child suffers in prison is hunger. The food that is given to it consists of a piece of usually badly baked prison bread and a tin of water for breakfast at half past seven. At twelve o'clock it gets dinner, composed of a tin of coarse Indian meal stirabout, and at half past five it gets a piece of dry bread and a tin of water for its supper. This diet, in the case of a strong-grown man, is always productive of illness of some kind, chiefly, of course, diarrhoea with its attendant weaknesses. In fact, in a big prison, astrogen medicines are served out regularly by the warders as a matter of course. In the case of a child, the child is, as a rule, incapable of eating the food at all. Anyone who knows anything about children knows how easily a child's digestion is upset by a fit of crying or trouble and mental distress of any kind. A child who has been crying all day long and perhaps half the night in a lonely dim-lit cell and is preyed upon by terror simply cannot eat food of this coarse, horrible kind. In the case of the little child to whom Warder Martin gave the biscuits, this child was crying with hunger on Tuesday morning and utterly unable to eat the bread and water served to it for its breakfast. Martin went out after the breakfast had been served and bought a few sweet biscuits for the child rather than see it starving. It was a beautiful action on his part and was so recognised by the child who, utterly unconscious of the regulations of the prison board, told one of the senior warders how this kind junior warder had been to him. The result, of course, was a report and a dismissal. I know Martin extremely well and I was under his charge for the last seven weeks of my imprisonment. On his appointment at Reading, he had charge of Gallery C, in which I was confined, so I saw him constantly. I was struck by the singular kindness of humanity, of the way in which he spoke to me and to the other prisoners. Kind words are much in prison. And a pleasant good morning or good evening will make one as happy as one can be in prison. He was almost gentle and considerate. I happen to know another case in which he showed great kindness to one of the prisoners, and I have no hesitate, hesitation in mentioning it. One of the most horrible things in prison is the badness of the sanitary arrangements. No prisoners are allowed under any circumstances to leave his cell after half past five. If consequently he is suffering from diarrhoea, he has to use his cell as a latrine and pass the night in a most fetid and unwholesome atmosphere. Some days before my release, Martin was going the rounds at half past seven with one of the senior warders for the purpose of collecting the oakum and tools of the prisoners. A man just convicted and suffering from violent diarrhoea as the consequence of the food. As is always the case, asked the senior officer to allow him to empty the slops in his cell on account of the horrible odour of the cell and the possibility of illness again in the night. The senior warder refused absolutely, it was against the rules. 
the man had to pass the night in this dreadful condition. Martin, however, rather than see this wretched man in such a loathsome predicament, said he would empty the man's slops himself, and he did so. The warder emptying a prisoner's slops is, of course, against the rules, why Martin did this act of kindness to the man out of the simple humanity of his nature. And the man was naturally most grateful. As regards the children, a great deal has been talked and written lately about the contaminating influence of prison on young children. What is said is quite true, a child is utterly contaminated by prison life. But the contaminating influence is not that of the prisoners. It is that of the whole prison system. Of the governor, the chaplain, the warders, the lonely cell, the isolation, the revolting food, the rules of the prison commissioners, the mode of discipline, as it is termed, of, and of the life. Every care is taken to isolate a child from the sight of all prisoners over 16 years of age. Children sit behind curtains in a chapel and are sent to take exercise in small sunless yards, sometimes stone yards, sometimes a yard at the back of the mills, rather than that they should see their elder prisoners at exercise. But the only really humanising influence in prison is the influence of prisoners. Their cheerfulness under terrible circumstances, their sympathy for each other, their humility, their gentleness, their pleasant smiles of greeting when they meet each other, their complete acquiescence in their punishments are all quite wonderful. And I myself learned many sound lessons from them. I'm not proposing that children should not sit behind a curtain in chapel, or that they should take exercise in a corner of the common yard. I'm merely pointing out that the bad influence on children is not, and can, never could be, that of the prisoners. But it is, and always will remain, that of the prison system itself. There is not a single man in red and gold that would not gladly have done the three children's punishment for them. When I saw them last, it was on Tuesday following their conviction. I was taking exercise at half past eleven with about twelve other men as the three children passed near us in charge of a warder from the damp, dreary stone yard in which they had been at their exercise. I saw the greatest pity and sympathy in the eyes of my companions as they looked at them. Prisoners are, as a class, extremely kind and sympathetic to each other. Suffering and the community of suffering makes people kind and day after day, as I tramped the yard, I used to feel with pleasure and comfort what Carlyle calls somewhere the silent rhythmic charm of human companionship. In this, as in all other things, philanthropists and people of that kind are astray. It is not the prisoners who need reformation. It is the prisons. Of course, no child under 14 years of age should be sent to prison at all. It is an absurdity, and like many absurdities, of absolute tragic results. If forever they're to be sent to prison, during the daytime they should be in a workshop or schoolroom with a warder. At night they should sleep in a dormitory with a night warder to look after them. They should be allowed exercise for at least three hours a day. The dark, badly ventilated, ill-smelling prison cells are dreadful for a child. It will indeed for anyone. One is always breathing bad air in prison. The food given to children should consist of tea 
and bread and butter and soup. Prison soup was very good and wholesome. A resolution of the House of Commons could settle the treatment of children in half an hour. I hope you use your influence to have this done. The way the children are treated in present is really an outrage on humanity and common sense. It comes from stupidity. Let me draw attention now to another terrible thing that goes on in English prisons. And indeed in prisons all over the world with a system of silence and cellular confinement practiced. I refer to the large number of men who become insane or weak-minded in prison. In convict prisons this is of course quite common, but in ordinary goals also, such as that I was confined in, it is to be found. About three months ago I noticed amongst the prisoners who took exercise with me a young man who seemed to me to be silly or half-witted. Every prison, of course, has its half-witted clients, who return again and again and may, set be, and may be said to live in prison. But this young man struck me as being more than usually half-witted on account of his silly grin and idiotic laughter to himself and the peculiar restlessness of his eternally twitching hands. He was noticed by all the other prisoners on account of the strangeness of his conduct. From time to time he did not appear at exercise, which showed me that he was being punished by confinement to his cell. Finally I discovered that he was under observation, and being watched night and day by warders. When he did appear at exercise he always seemed hysterical, and used to walk around crying or laughing. At chapel he had to sit right under the observation of two warders, who carefully watched him all the time. Sometimes he would bury his head in his hands, an offence against the chapel regulations, and his head would be immediately struck by a warder so that he should keep his eyes fixed permanently on the direction of the communion table. Sometimes he would cry, not making any disturbance, but with tears streaming down his face and hysterical throbbing in the throat. Sometimes he would grin idiot-like to himself and make faces. He was on more than one occasion sent out of the chapel to his cell, and of course he was continually punished. As the bench on which I used to sit in the chapel was directly behind the bench at the end of which this unfortunate man was placed, I had full opportunity of observing him. I also saw him, of course, exercise continually, and I saw that he was becoming insane, and was being treated as if he was shamming. On Saturday week last, I was in my cell about one o'clock, occupied in cleaning and polishing the tins I had been using for dinner. Suddenly I was startled by the prison silence after being broken for the most horrible and revolting shrieks. Or rather howls. For at first I thought some animal, like a bull or a cow, was being skillfully slaughtered outside the prison walls. I soon realised, however, that the howls proceeded from the basement of the prison, and I knew that some wretched man was being flogged. I need not say how hideous and terrible it was for me, and I began to wonder who it was who was being punished in this revolting manner. Suddenly it dawned upon me they might be flogging this unfortunate lunatic. My feelings on the subject need not be chronicled.
It had nothing to do with the question. The next day, Sunday the 16th, I saw the poor fellow at exercise. His weak, ugly, wretched face bloated by tears and hysteria almost beyond recognition. I walked to the centre ring along with the old men and beggars and the lame people, so that I was able to observe him the whole time. It was my last Sunday in prison. Perfectly lovely day, the finest day we'd had in the whole year. And there, in the beautiful sunlight, walked this poor creature, made once in the image of God, grinning like an ape, and making with his hands the most fantastic gestures, as though he was playing in the air on some invisible stringed instrument, or arranging and dealing counters in some curious game. And while these hysterical tears, without which none of us ever saw him, were making soiled runnels in his white, swollen face, hideous and deliberate grace of his gestures made him like an antic. He was a living grotesque. The other prisoners all watched him, and not one of them smiled. Everybody knew what happened to him, and everybody, he was being driven insane. was insane already. After half an hour he was ordered in by the warder, and I supposed punished. At least he was not to exercise on Monday, and I think I caught sight of him at the corner of the stone yard, walking in charge of a warder. On the Tuesday, my last day in prison, I saw him at exercise. He was worse than before, and again was sent in. Since then I know nothing of him. But I found out from one of the prisoners who walked with me at exercise They'd had 24 lashes in the cookhouse on Saturday afternoon, by order of the visiting justices on the report of the doctor. The howls that had horrified us all were his. This man is undoubtedly becoming insane. Prison doctors have no knowledge of mental disease of any kind. They are, as a class, ignorant men. The pathology of the mind is unknown to them. When a man grows insane, they treat him as shamming. They have him punished again and again. Naturally, the man becomes worse. When ordinary punishments are exhausted, the doctors report the case to the justices. The result is flogging. Of course, the flogging is not done with a cat and nine tails. It is what's called birching. The instrument is a rod, but the result on the wretched half-witted man may be imagined. His number is or was A211. I also managed to find out his name. It is Prince. Something should be done at once for him. He's a soldier, and his sentence is one of court-martial. The term is six months. Three have yet to run. May I ask you to use your influence to have this case examined into and to see that the lunatic prisoner is properly treated. No report of the medical commissioners is of any avail. It is not to be trusted. The medical inspectors do not seem to understand the difference between idiocy and lunacy, between the entire absence of a function or an organ and the diseases of a function or an organ. This man, A211, well, I will, I have no doubt, be able to tell his name 
the nature of his offence, the day of the month, the date, and the beginning and expiration of his sentence, and answer any ordinary simple question, but that his mind is disease admits of no doubt. At present it is a horrible duel between himself and the doctor. The doctor is fighting for a theory, the man is fighting for his life. I am anxious that the man should win. But let the whole case be examined into experts who understand brain disease and by people of humane feelings who have still some common sense and some pity. There is no reason that the sentimentalist should ever be asked to interfere. He always does harm. The case is a special instance of the cruelty inseparable from a stupid system. For the present Governor of Reading is a man of gentle, humane character, greatly liked and respected by all the prisoners. He was appointed in July last, and though he cannot alter the rules of the prison system, he has altered the spirit in which they used to be carried out under his predecessor. He was very popular with the prisoners and the warders. Indeed, he has quite altered the whole tone of the prison life. On the other hand, the system is of course beyond his reach so far as altering its rules is concerned. I have no doubt that he sees daily much of what he knows to be unjust, stupid and cruel. But his hands are tied. Of course I have no knowledge of his real views of the case of A211, nor indeed of his views on our present system. I merely judge him by the complete change he has brought about in Reading Prison. Under his predecessor the system was carried out with the greatest harshness and stupidity. I remain, sir, your obedient servant, Oscar Wilde.